Hello everybody, Ash here. Now what you're about to listen to is an episode originally uploaded to the Ear Read This Patreon page. For the moment, I've paused uploads to and payments from the Patreon as I focus on building the main channel. But if you are a patron, you can still access all the bonus content we have on there for free. And if you'd like to support the channel in the meantime, there's a link in the episode description box below. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Mitchum, the last of the tough guys. It's rambling. The hottest of the new broads in Raymond Chandler's sizzling murder classic, Farewell, My Lovely. Hello, my lovelies, and welcome to another Patreon-exclusive edition of Ear Read This. As we start to discuss King Arthur and Shakespeare's history plays on the main channel, over here we'll be making our way through Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe novels. So today, I'd like to take the opportunity to look at a few similarities between these two threads. How Chandler transplants aspects of Arthurian legend into the world of 1930s Los Angeles, and also have a look at what Marlowe calls his Shakespearean touch. Thank you, as always, to each of you for your continued support of the podcast, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Welcome to the podcast once again. Live from the basement. We're back talking about um, books and not um, silly crap. Um, <laughs> I think this is not mutually exclusive. Books can be silly crap. Books can be silly crap, as we've discovered. Um, so today we're going to talk about Farewell, My Lovely by Raymond Chandler. Continu- now, continuing our Chandler season. Yeah, I like this one even more. Me too. I think the only reason the other one became the seminal one is because of all of the f- very good film versions. The movies. And the, I think there's three film versions of this. I haven't watched any of them yet, but there's a Robert Mitchum one. There's a Jack O'Halloran one. Oh, is that old? I think that was the eighties. Oh, okay, no. Because uh, um, I think seventy-five. The Mitchum one's the seventies. Yeah, as well. Honestly, it's the same one. It's the same one. <laughs> <laughs> so who's Jack O'Halloran? Jack O'Halloran plays Moose. Ah, okay. The best character. Yeah. One of the best Chandler characters. Han- full Hands stop. Hands down. I, I can't immediately derail this by talking about the film. No, we'll no, talk no. About L- let's um, delay the film talk for now. Yeah. But um, this is an absolute firecracker of, of quotes. Oh. It's jam-packed with, I mean, it's not a very long novel. And as you can see, my, my um, little post-its, which are almost all like just diamond lines. I don't yeah. um, underline I'm, plot points. I just underline <laughs> the I'm, fun I'm, stuff. I'm, I'm looking at Ash's copy and I think it looks like almost every other page has a post-it note sticking y- out of it. Yeah, it's got a full Mohican of post-it <laughs> notes. Having made the jump from short story writer to novelist in 1939 when he published The Big Sleep, Chandler followed it up in the next year with Farewell, My Lovely. The first Marlowe novel had been a moderate success, and Farewell, My Lovely would be even less spectacular, selling just 11,000 copies in the United States and 4,000 here in the UK. Disappointingly for its author, Farewell, My Lovely's initial critical reception was in crime roundups such as this illuminating review. Mr Chandler is a near craftsman and writes like a breeze. A good time will be had by all. It wasn't until 1943, when the paperback Big Sleep appeared, that Chandler became at last a best-selling author. Like its predecessor, the plot of Farewell My Lovely is cannibalised from earlier Chandler short stories. This time round, he took bits and pieces from The Mandarin's Jade, The Man Who Liked Dogs and Try the Girl. The resulting novel was apparently Chandler's favourite and frequently seems to be the favourite of Chandler aficionados and critics as well. A decade after its publication, Chandler wrote... I think Farewell, My Lovely is the top, and that I shall never again achieve quite the same combination of ingredients. The novel is an insouciant comic gem, 
and Chandler goes slinking through his story with all the confidence and casual curiosity of an alley cat on life number eight. It's also got enough diamond one-liners in its opening scene to match the tightest of tight fives. For all the big sleep's strengths, it did have a kind of shuntiness as Marlowe moved from scene to scene. Chandler himself said that early on in his writing career, he couldn't get characters in and out of rooms. They lost their hats, and so did I. If more than two people were in a scene, I couldn't keep one of them alive. This feeling is still with me, of course, to some extent. Give me two people snotting each other across the desk, and I am happy. A crowded canvas just bewilders me. If in The Big Sleep you can occasionally catch Marlowe blocking his entrances and exits, in Farewell, My Lovely, Los Angeles slides under his feet like a silk treadmill. The world expands to take in seedy clubs, night drives out to the Malibu canyons and the town of Bay City, a reimagined Santa Monica where glinting offshore lie floating casinos. To populate the landscape is the usual Chandler parade of memorable character names, Moose Malloy, John Wax, the displaced Indian Second Planting and Laird Brunette to name a few, the latter being a criminal overlord running one of Bay City's gambling ships, who was based on a real-life kingpin called Tony Conero, who ran a real floating casino. Marlowe moves among these people, mingling with all types. How Chandler tracks his detective's capacity to hold his own with members of every class is one of the novel's highlights. Marlowe flirts with privileged trophy wives and then gets half-mad widows drunk. He wrinkles his nose at perfumed art collectors and mocks their collection. Asta Dial's Spirit of Dawn. I thought it was Klopstein's Two Warts on a Fanny. He visits infamous joints like Florian's, a nice quiet place, nobody been knifed there in a month, and later opulent homes of Westside Los Angeles, like that of Lindsay Marriott. It was the kind of room where people sit with their feet in their laps and sip absinthe through lumps of sugar and talk with high-affected voices and sometimes just squeak. It was a room where anything could happen, except work. Marlowe can be slick and protean, but he also has his limits and gets called out for cracking wise or pushing his luck. He understands people and can surprise them with his knowledge on occasion, but he isn't a perfect chameleon like some TV cop who looks like a PE teacher but can somehow go undercover and talk fluent jive. Often Marlowe seems to find the criminals easier to deal with and less crooked than the police. His conversations with professional villains like Laird Brunette are cordial and productive. His conversations with the brazenly corrupt Bay City police are marked by mutual frustration, violence, misunderstanding and mockery. Marlowe nicknames one of them Hemingway because this dirty cop is a guy that keeps saying the same thing over and over until he begins to believe it must be good. Marlowe's interactions with police are particularly interesting and as John Paul Athanasurelis has said, in Farewell My Lovely, Chandler paints a complex, contrastive picture of good and bad law enforcement and even casts Marlowe in the role of a police instructor. In his novel as a whole, Marlowe's role is that of narrator and guiding spirit, not, as you might expect, protagonist. Okay, so um, I would say the, f- the first plot point would be Ma- uh, Marlo. Marlo falls sideways into another story. He's he, he's just basically he's going down the pub, and he yeah. sees. He, no, he's he kind go- of witnesses a murder, doesn't he? On page one, I I discovered a phrase I'd never heard before because he's he's investigating. Does he actually ri- say the word fall sideways? No, I know, oh, but okay. he he just does fall sideways yeah. into a into a plot because he's he's investigating a relief barber, <laughs> which I've never heard of. And I looked it up, and there are obviously enough of them for it to become a surname. Yeah. Relief Barber. That's amazing. When I googled it, there, there were it first hit were people who were called, you know, Amelia Relief Barber. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Can we? Oh, 
A new podcast idea is name etymology. I mean, I think that one's fairly cut and dry, but I just, I, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so yeah, Marlowe's looking for a release Find from bar, page but. one. Marlowe becomes entangled with this big guy, Moose Malloy, who goes into this bar for... And immediately commits a murder. <laughs> Malloy immediately commits a murder. And so what we start off with is not a private investigator investigating cli- what happened. Yeah, a client doesn't turn up or anything. No, 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 there's no Fruity Dame. No, there's no Fruity Dame. There is literally just a, what's going on over here? What's going on over here? Oh, he's killed someone. But it doesn't turn into, like, what happened? How did he get killed? It's just more like, why? What's that guy? What's going on? What's going on with that with guy? that guy, yeah. And that's and the whole hook. And he just unveils himself into that well, you've, story. You've already alluded to how amazing a character Moose Malloy is. Oh, yeah. Moose Malloy is... Well, he, uh, Moose, Moose has to be a nickname. Because he is like, he's a giant. He's huge. He's huge. He's um, an ex-felon, I guess. Well, current felon, because he just did a murder. We, well, no, he got framed for armed robbery. He got framed for armed robbery, but then he did just oh, kill, then someone, he did just kill someone. Yeah, I think he probably killed someone in yeah. his past. And he is also looking for someone. Yeah. He's looking for Velma. Velma. This who used singing to, redhead. Who used to work in the bar. So once again, you have just Marlowe's um, curiosity about people carrying the plot forward. I mentioned in our episode on The Big Sleep that Chandler's previous name for Marlowe was Mallory, after Thomas Mallory, author of La Morte d'Arthur. Mallory was a genuine knight-errant and wrote in his famous work about the picaresque adventures of Arthur and the Round Table, Tristram and Isolde, and Galahad. Marlowe shares another link to knighthood with his first name, Philip, from the Greek Philippos, meaning lover of horses. According to E.M. Beekman, if Marlowe were an archetype, he would be a sombre knight on a never-finished quest, recharging his faith by adversity. Much like a knight, he appears to live by his own code. Nothing made it my business except my curiosity, but strictly speaking, I hadn't had any business in a month. Even a no-charge job was a change. His code is more of an intuition, nothing like the sometimes irritatingly pedantic code of chivalry observed by Mallory's knights. With only a hunch as vague as the heat waves that danced above the sidewalk, Marlowe takes his case. In his youth, Chandler had written romantic poetry, and according to the annotated Big Sleep, romanticism was in the air in the Edwardian England in which Chandler grew up. Retellings of the stories of the Knights of the Round Table and paintings of the Knights and Ladies of Arthurian England proliferated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and Chandler was unabashedly swept up in the prevailing vogue for fairyland and chivalry and courtly love. As recently as 1938, Arthur had been back in the saddle with the publication of The Sword in the Stone, the first of T.H. White's novels in the sequence The Once and Future King. The sequence is a reimagining of the stories found in Mallory, and The Once and Future King was one of my favourite books growing up, so you can confidently bet on it getting the old eerie this treatment quite soon. Chandler's references to Mallory and Arthurian legend are often plain to see. The plot of Farewell My Lovely revolves around the quest of Moose Malloy to find his Velma, later found out to have taken on the name Grail. In The High Window, Marlowe is memorably described as a shop-soiled Galahad, Galahad being the purest of the round table, and the knight who did indeed find the grail. But Marlowe isn't a rider of horses. To move his quest along, he gets in a car or gets himself knocked out. As Sand Avidar Waltzer has written, The rhythm of both the narrative and the plot is thus organised by two kinds of movement, automobile travel and brain damage. Cars and narcotics aren't just set dressing, they're the twin engines of the novel's narrative progress. On the road between plot points, Marlowe himself quips, the big foreign car drove itself, but I held the wheel for the sake of appearances. Unlike the knights errant who love nothing more than to fight for hours and soak the earth with blood, 
Marlowe characteristically avoids violence and tries at all costs to preserve life. His confrontations are always conversational if he can help it, and if he has to rely on more devious methods than his wits alone, he berates himself. When he tries to get information out of the alcoholic Jesse Florian by pouring her a slug that would have made me float over a wall, he thinks in tones of sarcastic self-loathing, I liked getting a drunk for my own sordid purposes. I was a swell guy. I enjoyed being me. Mallory's story displayed the occasional trouble incurred by adhering to a code of honour. What Chandler shows is the impossibility of having such a code in a world where the motivation behind a bashed-in corpse could be that some people just like to smash heads. We're going to go to this canyon in the desert. Yeah. And then in classic in classic Marlowe style, he gets whacked over the back of the head. He gets coshed out. And then he wakes up and then he's dead. <laughs> Does he get coshed out less than in... The... I actually think, no, there's much more coshing in there's this one. There's a lot more coshing in this one. A lot of coshing. He gets coshed at the Mesmerists. He gets coshed three times in this book, I think. <laughs> Um, this, this is when, the most important coshing, though. This, th- this yeah, first I, one. B- before we go on, I, th- I think we should do a cosh counter. Okay, yeah. If a high window, we will do a cosh <laughs> counter. Um, so yeah, he wakes up and Lindsay's dead. Yep. Um, Lindsay, interestingly, um, rather like uh, Joel Cairo from um, Maltese Falcon. His pockets are full of marijuana cigarettes. <laughs> and also um, cambric <laughs> handkerchiefs. Yeah. So yeah, this is, uh, you know, what seems like the primary mystery is who killed Lindsay um, Marriott or Harriet? Yeah, Lindsay Marriott. Marriott. And then it changes again because then the woman who picks Marlowe up from the desert hires him to find a stolen necklace. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is what Lindsay had no- uh, noticed. So you have all yeah. these things going on um, and then there's this old, old woman who uh, um, is uh, an alcoholic who, um, when she laughs, it sounds like a hen hiccuping. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but then the it all sort of ties together yeah. when he finds out that um, Marriott was actually involved with the Florians. And yeah, so then those sort of two plot points converge yeah. and then Moose re-enters the story yeah. in style. Yeah, and then he Marlowe goes into jail for a while. He's arrested at one point. Does he go into jail? I thought he goes goes to investigate the mesmerist. Oh, no, no this, this is the bit I talked about in the last one. Yeah. Where this is where he gets drugged and he wakes up in the, the drug hospital. This, yeah, weird drug hospital. Um, and he sees Moose Malloy. Mm-hmm. He's also been dr- taken to the drug hospital. He's recovering mm-hmm. or lying low. He doesn't know. Yeah. So this is when, this is before they really understood just how damaging morphine was. Yeah. This was, I think, especially in the Second World War, they were incredibly morphine happy mm. where they thought it was this miracle cure where it can make wounded soldiers just get back up and fight again. So you've got a whole lot of people coming back from the war who were horribly addicted to heroin, basically. Yeah. And hospitals like this would basically prey on people by getting them addicted to morphine and then getting them to pay for their treatment. So yeah, I think he was, Marlowe and Moose were sort of taken to this place to shut them up. Yeah. Keep them in a, in a drug-induced coma for a little bit. It doesn't, like a lot of things in these books, it doesn't really get resolved. He just, he goes there... He escapes. He sort of threatens the chief doctor, but doesn't really kind of deal with him. He threatens his way out. He threatens his way out. And then the hospital just disappears. And then he goes back to the old lady's house. Yeah. And Moose Malloy has shaken her to death. <laughs> not, th- not the first person he's shaken to death. No, this is the second person he's shaken he's to death. He's a little bit of a um, Mice and Men vibe he's about him. He's got a bit of a Lenny to him. <laughs> yeah. At this point, the police are really irritated by Marlowe yeah. as well, where they're just like, just drop it. Oh, there's another another great bit is he finds another corrupt cop in um, Bay City, which yes. I think is um, a stand-in for Santa Monica. Yep. Um, John Wax. John Wax is the um, fat uh, head corrupt uh, cop. 
but he gets um uh one of the pe- one of the two koshim are the uh, two of his uh under cops red norgard the um the ex cop who the corrupt copy ops and sneak onto the boat but before we get him we have these two henchmen cops mm-hmm. who do the koshing one of whom Mar- um marlo calls hemingway because of his habit of just repeating himself as if it will become <laughs> meaningful. Just, Which I is a bit of Chandler comment on, yeah. lit- on some literary heroes. According to W.H. Auden, Chandler's powerful but extremely depressing books should be read and judged not as escape literature, but as works of art. Chandler was constantly rattled by people who suggested he write a real novel. When people ask me, as occasionally they do, why I don't try my hand at a serious novel, I don't argue with them. I don't even ask them what they mean by a serious novel. They wouldn't know. Although he remains an icon of detective fiction, he escaped the fate of many fellow genre writers have never been taken seriously. One of his obituaries read that, in working the vein of crime fiction, he mined the gold of literature. His attempts to take the detective story and, as Dashiell Hammett had said, make literature of it, can be seen in his cavalier approach to plot. According to Frank McShane, Farewell, My Lovely resembles a restoration comedy in which the plot is not so important as the picture of life portrayed through its characters and the humour produced by the jokes and situations. Chandler had a classical education at Dulwich College, and as we have seen, his literary credentials surfaced throughout the Marlowe novels. Interestingly, Dulwich College was founded by the Elizabethan actor Edward Allen, who famously took leading roles in three plays written by Shakespeare's contemporary and our detective's namesake, Christopher Marlowe. When R. Marlowe says he has the Shakespearean touch, it is in response to being asked why he must talk about people having to change their pants hourly. But a less soiled Shakespearean touch is indeed on view in the novel, as J.O. Tate has written. The title of Farewell, My Lovely masks a gesture that shows something of the reach of Chandler's mind and sensibility. Cannibalising stories he had published in pulp magazines, Chandler called his work in progress The Girl from Florian's, and then The Second Murderer. His publisher didn't like that and suggested another Shakespeare reference, Sweet Bell's Jangle. Chandler replied with, Zunes, he dies. In Richard III, it is the second murderer who says the line, Zunes, he dies, and Sweet Bell's Jangled is a phrase from Hamlet. Marlowe shows that he has a sense of the genre he's in when he tells little Velma that Moose loves her, saying, that's what makes it funny, tragic funny. Moose himself gets compared to Othello as one who loved not wisely, but too well. As for literary credentials closer to home, Chandler might have teased Hemingway in this novel, and also written a parody called The Sun Also Sneezes, but he still considered Hemingway one of the best living writers, and thought, the best writing in English today is done by Americans, but not in any purist tradition. They have roughed the language around as Shakespeare did. They have knocked over tombs and sneered at the dead, which is as it should be. There are too many dead men, and there is too much talk about them. The magazine Chandler originally published his stories in, Black Mask, was set up as a way of funding The Smart Set, a more highbrow literary magazine. Chandler, if he had been so inclined, could have replicated this technique, doffed off a few cheap thrillers in order to fund the serious novel people kept asking him for. But instead, he saw no reason to make such a distinction, and made serious novels out of pulp. It's therefore tempting to draw a parallel between this and the way that Marlowe honours the unsavoury characters he comes across. His fairness and Chandler's refusal to treat the genre as anything other than literature show the real honour code at work here. Pulp, which never dreamt of posterity, was being treated like it had a life worth living. You know, most detective novels have their mystery 
supplemented with a character study of the detective. Mm-hmm. So you learn more about his character, maybe his backstory, <clears throat> blah, 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 blah. What, what works is that Marlowe isn't like that. You don't no. get more of Marlowe. I think he's just that Marlowe finds the role he's supposed to here, which is provide all the style. Definitely. Like, it's really not his story. He, he just keeps interrupting. It's Moose Malloy's story. Moose Malloy has a kind of almost like Greek tragic destiny. Oh, well, I, I think that it's almost as if there's a sort of hurricane moose and Marlowe <laughs> is always a couple of steps behind. Like a little storm chaser. Like a little storm chaser. And yeah. he just keeps finding all of the destruction in the way. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect description. Avital Renell said, learning to speak is like learning to shoot. And Marlowe certainly speaks first and asks questions later. I know I talk too smart. It's in the air nowadays. But his wisecracks serve a purpose. Comic hyperbole has the effect of neutralising physical danger. The big man purred softly, like four tigers after dinner. According to the annotated Big Sleep, the wisecrack was not restricted to tough guy fiction. It was becoming the national style. Mae West was famously sexy, W.C. Fields was a cantankerous drunk, and Groucho Marx had a grease paint moustache. But they were also among the wittiest people in America. Marlowe shows his wit in more than just cracking wise. His client, Lindsay Marriott, responds with peevish grandiosity as to whether or not his business is legitimate. I should not have called you if it were not, prompting Marlowe to remark to himself, nice use of the subjunctive mood, showing that he's always sensitive to linguistic effect. Frequently in the dark, late to the crime scene, and on the receiving end of bad intentions, Marlowe relies on his wits. I was just a voice, he reflects at one point, a statement resonant of a line of ordens. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. It is only the voice of Marlowe that turns the noisy chaos of criminal Los Angeles into sense. Chandler wrote, There is a strong element of fantasy in the mystery story. There is in any kind of writing that moves within an accepted formula. The mystery writer's material is melodrama, which is an exaggeration of violence and fear beyond what one normally experiences in life. The means he uses are realistic in the sense that such things happen to people like these and in places like these, but this realism is superficial. The potential of emotion is overcharged, the compression of time and event is a violation of probability, and although such things happen, they do not happen so fast and in such a tight frame of logic to so closely knit a group of people. I'm going to talk about Philip K. Dick for a second. All right. Um, Philip K. Dick had all of these amazing ideas. Any which of these ideas on their own could be any writer's greatest idea. But he had so many that he would start writing one and then he'd get bored with it and move on to the next one. I get the same feeling from Chandler, who just has all of these great ideas for hard-boiled set pieces. Mm -hmm. But he just can't always make them fit together, which is where the coshing comes in. So you've got this bit where your main character is drugged up and wakes up in hospital and you've got this bit where he meets a mesmerist and he's got this bit where he's knocked over the back of the head in a canyon and then a there's the big lo- load of stuff on the boat oh <laughs> very strange moment for marlo where he suddenly gets freaked out yeah um going going to um and it's kind of scared of death towards the end marlo is on the way to laird brunette's floating casino when the following happens i'm scared i said suddenly i'm scared stiff it's interesting that this is said not thought by our narrator but it doesn't quite come out of the blue. It happens shortly after Marlowe leaves his noisy world behind him and boards Red Norgard's boat, hoping to sneak aboard Laird Brunette's ship. The noises died behind me. The hot, dishonest light became a fumbling glare. Before long, there was no sound at all. I'm afraid of death and despair, I said, of dark water and drowned men's faces and skulls with empty eye sockets. I'm afraid of dying, of being nothing of not finding a man named Brunette. 
what Marlowe is afraid of, it sounds like, is silence, because Marlowe truly is only a voice. There is no code of chivalry in this world, and no authority to depend upon. All he can do to redeem his city and his story is frame it as best he can in his own words. Um, so yeah, then we have this bit on the boat trip to the boat now he's going on the boat to try and speak to a maf- uh, uh, mob boss brunette. who brunette laird brunette, laird brunette. <laughs> that is the best name laird brunette or john wax i think because um, i think there was a i think at this point california had gambling laws where you couldn't gamble within the city yeah so you had a lot of these offshore gambling boats yes there's a through the three mile limit where you couldn't gamble within three miles of something within california i love the idea when when they're going to the ship they really build up three miles three miles off the coast becomes international waters and then you can do any do whatever you want any kind of shit out there right i love when they're going towards the boat they just build up this idea of the boat as just like a sausage machine like the 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 way that they talk about it is just like there's no getting off that you you just step on and just obliterated hell you disappear off the grid like you're just gone um, I think he has quite a nice time on the boat. <laughs> and then, yeah, he's just, it's just absolutely frictionless, which is, um, yeah. Yeah. Funny. What was I going to... Yeah, would, would you say that it, um, talking about Moose Malloy's sort of having this tragic curve, yeah. he literally, we're going to give away the ending now, but he, from the beginning, is seeking this um, woman, almost mm-hmm. like a Terminator, except he wants to find her and, 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 I don't know, rescue her, be with her, or just find out what's happened to her. Sure. And we realized that he, for, for the whole book, has been seeking this sort of uh, means to his end mm-hmm. because she doesn't want him to find her. Yes. And she is, turns out to um, be the agent of his death. Yeah. Just shoots him on sight. Um, Velma is uh, revealed to be um, living under another name. Grail. Grail. And she has been sort of shifting identities and, and kind of making her way out of this slightly seedier past life and building a, a new one for herself. Well, because Marlowe and Grail actually... They've already met. They've already met. Yeah, they actually yeah. almost go on a date. Yeah, they do. Well, yeah. she's really into him, isn't yeah. she? Like, um, we were talking... Was it... We were talking about the Hammer or Chandler about sort of the different sort of um, sexual behavior of both. Marlowe has these sort of like sad romances, Yes, you were saying. And then... Um, um hammett just is more like primal and just uses people up yeah but with this one marlo's like m- way more into it yes yeah. he's a bit more well the end of her story is incredibly tragic where she yeah she, she escapes and then you later find out her fate yes she she kills a cop in baltimore and then kills herself and then shoots herself yeah and Mar- marlo is once again left to just pick up all the pieces and move on to his next yeah next adventure yeah which um sounds like it, it's going to be a downer, but that's the thing. It's <coughs> it's like a concealed tragedy in a way. Definitely, yeah. Marlowe is sort of spinning round this um, the tragic curve of of, of Moose Malloy. Definitely, and Velma. She's involved, but oh, she, yeah. she she's sort of semi hidden for most of it. But it's it's. I think it's the kind of classic. It's it's the sort of spin on the Bonnie and Clyde thing mm. when you've got a sort of criminal couple and maybe one of them slightly less into it than the other. Yeah. And then it's just never going to end well for anybody. It's like, uh, I think that's another reason why it's, I enjoyed it more than, even more than Big Sleep. And I do love the Big Sleep. It's because Big Sleep has a bit more of a, 
And I would have gotten away with it too, ending. She's mad, but she also tries to <coughs> off him at the end and yeah. he's thought it through. Whereas Marlowe's just sort of a grim spectator on this whole thing. Of this, yeah, sort of high tragedy. Well, I think, n- no, no spoilers for the high window, but it's my favourite one. Oh, okay, great. I think o- all of them have their own sort of unique stylistic choices. With this one, I think the stylistic choice is Moose, mm. who is just this sort of... The Lieutenant Nolte thinks Marlowe's going to have a really easy time finding Moose because he's wearing these ridiculous clothes <laughs> and he's like seven Huge. feet tall. Yeah, <laughs> And they, they, they pull over a guy who's like similarly sized. Uh-huh. It just turns out not to be him. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's like a few false Mooses. They're just hassling all of the large men in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a... It's a do you want to talk about the film? Because I haven't watched any of them. I haven't actually seen this one. Oh, okay, fine. We no, um, I've <clears throat> the only the only film adaptation of the Marlowe's I've seen is the Big Sleep. Right. Well, maybe we should do like um, maybe once we get to the end of them, we should do a like a, a viewing, a binge watching them, and maybe do a commentary or something. <laughs> do a commentary track. That, that, if I think binging these would be an incredibly stressful. Well, I mean, just endeavor. picking one from each one yeah. from each film, one from each story. Jesus. I'm also going to twist your arm into watching Chinatown. At the end of all of this as well. Twist my arm. It's I love Chinatown. Oh well, then we can watch Chinatown <laughs> happily. Which is we talked I'm, about Chinatown way too much. That's the problem. We don't need to talk more about Chinatown because we don't have the book. Uh, nobody, you know what Chinatown was based on a book. Who by? Uh, I'll look it up. Because um, we should just do that book, and then we've got we've, we've already got like I mean I must have cut out about an hour of talking about <laughs> Chinatown. Already. Trying to put it all back together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chinatown we couple it back into a Franken episode. Chinatown, Chinatown, Chinatown. Yeah, I mean it's an amazing. Bloody amazing film. Too bad. Yeah. Bloody Roman Polanski ruining everything he touches. Uh, boom, boom, boom. I think that was pre-rape, wasn't it? Yes. It, it, so it's it's morally fine to watch. Oh yeah. It's good. Artists decline tend to. It was um, a sequel. Was there? It was a sequel called the two. The Jakes. two Jakes. Oh yeah, yeah. I've yeah. not seen it. It's not really a sequel. It's just more of that character. I think it was very Jack Nicholson pushed produced oh it's, 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 it's not based on a book it was based on an original screenplay okay yeah. robert town who was going to write it into a book but it was taken and made into a film instead yeah robert town is a um uh, i've got a way we could start talking about it there's a great book called easy riders raging bulls mm. which is about never read it but i've seen it on a shelf yeah it's um yeah hollywood and kind of in the 60s but it goes further than that it's more about sort of the auteur generation by robert town or about no robert no no town? just robert town's a major okay. sort of figure yeah. in it we could do that, and then we then we've got that. an excuse to talk about all these films. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm more than happy to keep doing all the Chandlers because each book we're not going to really repeat ourselves that often. Each book has enough of its own personality. Uh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I don't, well, there's, there's enough to talk about in each book to keep it interesting. So, hope you're excited for a high window episode. Yeah. Well, I think we've got. I think there's there are seven. Good. We can definitely s- <coughs> meet out our um, our Chandler. Um, sequence great well um yeah look out for the high window stay safe out there don't get coshed don't get coshed i've taken to wearing a little um uh, i've adapted a um a skull cap into an anti-coshing um (laughs) back you get coshed and it just goes makes a big gong bounces right back in their face (laughs) (laughs) it starts beeping like a car (laughs) (laughs) kosh alert kosh alert (laughs) all right all right bye take it easy don't get coshed Thank you very much for listening to this um, secret episode of Ear Read This. I hope you're all keeping well and safe in this weird time. Um, we'll be back soon with uh, another Marlowe and I think another uh, Lizardkin as well. Um, until then, happy reading. 